The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another edition of Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar, on Friday, the 16th of August. 2019. This is indeed Friday Night Live, beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding areas tonight, and also to the good people of Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby, and Peterborough through our partner stations across the nation. Top stories tonight is that Rashida Tlaib has rejected Israel's offer of a humanitarian visit. That's right, the US Congressman Rashida Tlaib has rejected Israel's offer to allow her to make a humanitarian visit to her grandmother in the occupied West Bank. And you'll know that Rashida is one of two Muslim Democratic Congresswomen in the US, and they had originally been due to make an official visit to the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Sunday. However, under pressure from US President Donald Trump, um, Israel denied them permission to visit the territory it controls. That is the top story coming out of the world news tonight. And also coming up on tonight's program, we've got an action-packed show. We're going to be about the very heated topic of Kashmir. Uh, We're also going to be talking about another very heated topic. That's back and muscular pain. Dr. Dalib Abu Bakr is going to be joining us. He's a local GP in Luton. And also we'll be talking about the very sad deaths of two young Muslim teenagers from Luton that happened in Clacton uh, last Saturday. And of course, their funerals happened only a couple of days ago. We'll be remembering them and also talking about beach safety. And also, we'll be talking about a very interesting topic as well. Luton's masjids are participating in a blood donations drive. Looking forward to hearing more about that, along with my very special uh, co-host, uh, Zafar Iqbal. Zafar Sahab, alaikum. Can you hear me? Walaikum salam. Yes, indeed. How are you? I am very well, Zafar Sahab. How are you doing? Long time no speak or hear. I know. I know. The new radio silence, isn't there? Literally speaking. I know. <laughs> literally speaking, literally speaking, indeed. Uh, I can't hear the uh, background uh, 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 tone that we have for Friday Night Live, but that's okay. Can you hear um, me now? The show continues. Oh, now I can hear it. It's back again. Um, but so obviously, we're going to go on to our first topic of the evening, and we're going to be getting on our um, guests as well on the line. We've got Professor... Zafar Khan Saab, who's joining us uh, on the line. He's head of diplomatic affairs of London's chapter of the Jammu Kashmir Revelation Front. Um, but before we go to him, I, I do want to very quickly uh, make sure that we're able to go into the context regarding this story. So, um, as you all know, uh, the Kashmir crisis kicked off uh, over a week ago now. It seems like it's only been a few days, but I'm sure to those of us um, who are from Kashmir will actually feel that this has been going on for a long, long time. And it is, of course, on the back of the fact that the decision to strip Indian administered Kashmir of its autonomous status, they claim, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi says, will free it from terrorism. And my question, Zafar Saab, and my question to those listening to the program tonight is that was Narendra Modi's decision the right decision, given that 
they claim, the Indians claim, the Indian government claims. And in fact, uh, a lot of people claim that a lot of violence was emanating from the region of Kashmir and that this special status that was afforded to Kashmir, Article 370, uh, and I'm only asking Dr. Zafar uh, Khan Saab a bit more about that in a moment, um, but this special status was effectively creating separatism and what the Indians claim terrorism and dynastic politics and corruption. I look forward to finding more about uh, that from our guests on the line in a moment. But uh, Zafar Iqbal Saab, in the studio, what do you reckon? I mean, what's your take on what Narendra Modi has done and how do you think it's going to play out over the next few days and weeks. Because frankly speaking, Imran Khan seems like a bit of a lame duck prime minister right now. Somebody who effectively is going to the United Nations and frankly, India is just ignoring the United Nations. Mm, I think you, you've hit it on the head there. India is ignoring the United Nations. Uh, that's essentially what uh, exactly is done. Uh, I guess the, I think Zafar Saab will, uh, Zafar Khan Saab will give you more details, but uh, this article uh, uh, effectively uh, tied Kashmir, uh, both sides, I guess, the, the Indian side of the Kashmir, to the Indian Union Constitution, uh, and effectively removing that, uh, effectively sort of um, does away with, with the conditions that were, were attached to uh, the quote-unquote accession, I guess, uh, to the Indian Union back in 1947 by the, uh, the Maharaja, uh, which was that, that uh, the Kashmiri Kashmir people be given a voice. Uh, there's a referendum, there's a plebiscite to decide how they want to go towards Pakistan, towards India or independence. Uh, and that plebiscite was promised, uh, and, it's, uh, and I, I think there were uh, United Nations uh, resolutions about this, uh, but they've never okay. been acted upon and effectively mm. what India has done now is, is invaded uh, the uh, um, the other side of Kashmir or colonized it effectively. That's what why okay. the reading I get. Jazakallah Let's take that to uh, Professor Zafar Khan Saab right now who is on the line. Salaam alaikum Professor Zafar Khan Saab. <coughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're live on the radio tonight. So uh, Zafar Khan Saab, effectively Narendra Modi, Prime Minister of India, has said that um, the decision to strip Kashmir of its autonomous status would free it of terrorism. Do you agree with that? I think that we, we have some uh, connection issues. Uh, okay, no problem. I mean, I, I, this, this is the question I have, Zafar Saab, for um, Zafar well, Khan Saab, which is to, to, be, to be honest, it's a ploy. If anything, it's going to increase that because the people mm. of the valley uh, have, uh, have already been feeling alienated for a number of years many years i would say uh and and what's what's happened now effectively uh they've been told that uh you no longer have the option of of uh being free from the indian union yeah. you're going to be part of the indian union uh, and if anything um their grievance is going to increase uh, and the sense of but violence what, what i don't but what i don't understand is that the kashmiri people consider themselves to be an independent people. They don't consider themselves to be Pakistani. They don't consider themselves to be Indian. I'm talking about the majority here. I'm sure there are a small minority that consider them attached to Pakistan and or India. However, what we have to remember here is that Kashmir is a Muslim majority 
part of the world. Agreed? Mm. Rise of Assad? Yeah, that, that's what the stats say. Yeah, stats say it's Muslim majority. So, I mean, and the closest Muslim majority country um, that actually bases its constitution on Islam is Pakistan. So I don't understand, and I would love for Kashmiris to call me up right now on 01582 um, I'm happy to take you on the line to share your perspectives. But why don't why I, I don't understand is why do Kashmiris want an independent state known as uh, you know Azad Kashmir or Kashmir when they can have a nuclear-powered you know ally and Pakistan with them uh, as part of them? And they become part of Pakistan because surely they are much better protected if they are part of a large Muslim majority country, um, which bases its constitution on Islam, versus another country, India, which is not Muslim majority, it's Hindu majority. And clearly there is no connection between the people that live there and those in Azad Kashmir. What's, what, what say you, Zafar yeah, so, so I think that there's a couple of things there. Uh, I think majority of the Kashmiris want that decision for themselves. That's the key thing, whether to join India, to join Pakistan or be free. And that decision effectively has been denied to them uh, through revocation of this particular um, particular act which joined the Indian side of the Kashmir, India-occupied Kashmir, to India. Uh, so so whether, whether the people choose to side with one or the other, uh, or remain or be independent that should have been the right uh, of the people uh, and that's the right that was has been enshrined i guess in the uh, united nations con uh, resolutions uh, and what's, ha what's happened mm. really is is that that's now been denied uh, and they no longer have a uh, well they don't no longer have the option to refer to the united nations because effectively india has occupied that that land Okay, uh, I think that noise it. meant that um, bro uh, Professor Zafar Khan Saib uh, is back yes, on the yes, line. Zafar Khan Saib, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. MashaAllah. Jazakallah Thanks for joining us live on the radio. We appreciate your time tonight. So my question to you earlier, which uh, you, I don't know if you heard or not, but let me repeat it for the benefit of our listeners, is that the decision to strip Indian administrative Kashmir of its autonomous status would free it of terrorism according to the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Do you agree with that? I do not agree with that. I think uh, it was an ideological, it was an ideological, ideologically based uh, decision by a regime or a government that is uh, ultra-chauvinist uh, in its policies. And uh, Kashmir actually has uh, become a victim of its policies in order to uh, in order to uh, gain politically in India itself uh, for his party. So the decision uh, has nothing to do with uh, what was going on in uh, in Kashmir itself. And you see, coming back to the um, decision to uh, revoke uh, Article 370 and Article 35A, the time of temporary accession of Jammu Kashmir to India was that... Um, um, there has to be, this was part of the arrangement, uh, that India would be responsible for um, defense, foreign affairs, and communications. And Article 370, uh, in fact, was created within the Indian Constitution to um, recognize that arrangement. Now, in, in one way, once that has been revoked, the arrangement has also ended. 
Therefore, the situation, if you like, uh, is same as in terms of Kashmir's position, same as before 14th of August or 15th of August, respectively, 1947. So, Jammu Kashmir technically today is an independent country, but occupied by over 800,000 Indian military and paramilitary forces. But it's also arguably, by that logic, as Zafra Khan Saab, it's also arguably occupied by Pakistani uh, troops as well. Yes, of course. But Pakistan has not unilaterally uh, taken a decision, which India uh, quite obviously has done on 5th of August uh, this year. And um, India is bound by agreements, not only United Nations resolutions, which uh, number around 15, but also the 1972 a uh, similar agreement between India and Pakistan, which clearly stipulates that neither India nor Pakistan would unilaterally take any decision or make any or take any actions to disturb the status quo until the resolution of the Kashmir issue itself. So India today has um, uh, stands accused of doing exactly what it was supposed to, not supposed to do. But India's parliament, Zafar Khan Saab, voted, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago to reclassify the state of Jammu and Kashmir as a union territory, which effectively gave the government in New Delhi greater authority <clears throat> over the Muslim-majority region of Kashmir, right? So, but this was a democratic decision. So, on one hand, um, Kashmiris are saying that we want the ability to actually um, choose our own destiny. But on the other hand, Narendra Modi, it could be argued, and look, I don't agree with what he's done, but the stance he is taking is a democratic stance because this has effectively been voted for by India's parliament. Well, that, uh, that is not an argument that can uh, stand in legal terms because Kashmir is not a, an ordinary Indian state. Kashmir is a country which had a special arrangement. The ruler of Kashmir at the time of his accession gave only three subjects to the Indian Union. The rest remained with him or with his country or with his with the state that subsequently became a, a, a state within the Indian Union uh, with reference to 370 and all the arrangements. So uh, on top of that, you have the disputed nature of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the region uh, because Pakistan uh, disputed the accession anyway. The people of Jammu Kashmir also disputed. And hence, mm. you have these, uh, uh, you know, the conflict in, in Kashmir. And there are, as I said, there are 15-plus uh, UN resolutions which are still standing. And I, I dare say that the meeting today in New York of the Security Council, which Pakistan asked to convene, may have even made reference to, to that. I'm, I'm actually traveling at the moment, and so I, I'm not sure what the news is. But the... Yeah, we're, we're going to meet at 11 o'clock UN and American G time today, which is around 4 o'clock our time here. Absolutely, Zafar Khan Saab. You're absolutely right. Zafar Khan Saab, just hold the line there for a moment because I do want to make sure that all of our listeners are included on the conversation tonight. Listeners, you are tuned in to Friday Night Live uh, with me, Abdul Akbar, and Zafar Iqbal here in the studio. Um, of course, right now we're talking about the very sensitive topic of Jammu and Kashmir and the position and, frankly speaking, the action that the Indian government has taken on making sure that Kashmir, the Indian side of Kashmir at least, is now effectively part of India 
and remove the special status that was afforded to that part of the region. Um, it's basically, Article 370 has been thrown out of the window. But my question is, what say you on 01582481822? Do you think, and I'm asking you who's listening to the program right now, do you think that Kashmir should be an independent state? In other words, um, you know, whether you have affiliations to India or Pakistan or not, you consider yourself a Kashmiri, I'd like to hear from you. Or do you think that the region of Kashmir should actually belong to one of the two larger nations? I know China has a bit of Kashmir as well, which Pakistan has conceded it. But do you think that Kashmir is better off with Pakistan? And that's effectively the stance that I'm taking tonight, which is I don't think Kashmir should be an independent state. I think Kashmir should be a region that's a part of a larger Muslim majority nation which has an Islamic constitution which is known as Pakistan. And I don't understand why people want their own independent small Kashmiri state. I think it's just nationalism. I don't think it has benefit for anyone if we take that route. And we can see the fruits of that route right now with respect to the United Nations response which is effectively giving us words, but very little action. 01582 481822, I want to hear from you if you agree or disagree with what I'm saying right now. And by the way, it's okay to disagree. I want to go back to our um, guest on the line, we've got Zafra Khan Saab. He's been very, very helpful to join us. He's Professor Zafra Khan, Head of Diplomatic Affairs of the London chapter of the Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front, and he is live on the radio with us right now. But I also love to hear from callers around the UK as well. Coming up a bit later on in tonight's program, by the way, we're going to be talking about back and muscle pain. And Dr. Dalib Abu Bakr, local GP in Luton, is going to be joining us for that. And of course, we're going to be remembering the very sad deaths of two Lutonians, actually, um, who passed away in Clacton in, on sea. Um, just over a week ago, I will be talking about beach safety with the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, um, and they'll be joining us on the program. Very sad news to hear um, that uh, just over a week ago. Um, but, uh, you know, the latest news coming out of Imran Khan, and I would love to get uh, Zafar Khan's take on this in a moment, but Imran Khan effectively said today that the Indian government's fascist tactics in Kashmir will fail miserably to smother the Kashmiri freedom struggle. Now, the cricketer turned politician in a series of tweets today warned the Indian government that no force can stop a nation from achieving its goals when unity is achieved in a freedom struggle and death is not feared. So clearly some, Professor Zafar Khan Saab, clearly some very strong words coming out of the Pakistani premier, but very little action. Why do you think that is? Well, that is a question that uh, should be directed to him and to Pakistani um, the, uh, government officials. But I, I think uh, Pakistan party to the Pakistan and people of Kashmir, and as such, Pakistan has a local standard in the dispute, and therefore they have a, a role to play. Uh, coming back to your question, which you posed to your listeners, I think Gee. it is for the people of Kashmir to decide about the future status of their country and that is what was stipulated by the United Nations and also the, the, the bilateral agreement between Pakistan also stipulates that uh, 
the final decision will rest with the people of Kashmir and neither India nor Pakistan will disturb the status quo. Now India quite clearly has disturbed the status quo and so I think that is where we are and the dismemberment and annexation of Jammu Kashmir or Indian occupied Jammu Kashmir is not only illegal in Indian law but it is also illegal in international law. And 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 um, uh, so the process is that India needed, or and uh, Mr. Modi needed to f have followed, uh, were not followed in arriving at the decision that uh, his government uh, arrived at uh, on 5th of August. Yeah, really interesting points yeah. there. Jazakallah Khair for that, Zafar Khan. Yeah, Just stay on the line with us because I want to come back to you with another question in a moment. But let's go to Zafar Iqbal in the studio because Zafar Iqbal Sahab, um, What's your take on the tactics that Pakistan is deploying here? Clearly, I can see that Imran Khan is, you know, going in and giving peace a chance first. And I don't think he's in the mood for a war right now. What say you? I, I think we should we should talk about war, to be honest. I think going back to your question about whether uh, whether the Kashmiris should be part of Pakistan um, because it's a Muslim nation and it's got a, a Islamic constitution. Well, this yeah. partic this particular article, Article 370, gave them that choice, that choice to choose to be part of Pakistan if they wanted to. Uh, by removing it effectively, that means that that door has been shut completely. So the people of of occupied uh, Kashmir now are firmly in control of of a federal central government, unelected, and uh, basically. Uh, with no input from the, the people of the valley, uh, basically. So you talked earlier on about you know uh, democratic decisions uh, in Indian Parliament. Well, uh, I think like Zafar Khan has said, a uh, lot of lot of the decisions about these kind of things uh, should be made at the the local level, the local unit level rather than the central level. So I don't think the central government has a jurisdiction, and I think that's been challenged or being challenged uh, in the Supreme Court in India. Uh, but essentially, I think, you know, uh, what this means and what, what Imran Khan can do, there's not a lot Imran Khan can do, to be honest, uh, apart from the fact that he can go back and go to the United Nations and, and uh, ask for the rule of law to be applied. Because the civilizations that exist, have existed for about a century or so, have prided themselves on rule of law uh, to basically not, not go back to the years of war in the early 20th century. Right, where people basically took it upon themselves to create uh, the legal reasons for doing stuff that they wanted to do. But it looks like history is revisiting itself. We're seeing that in Israel. Israel has taken it upon themselves to ignore the rule of law. And now India is following suit. And what that, all, what that means is that any, any legal basis on which the, the nations cooperate globally uh, is being undermined, massively undermined by, by this act. And United Nations has been sidelined. We can say United Nations is, is weak and we can say United Nations is irrelevant. But the, at the end of the day, that's the vehicle right, which effectively tries to apply rule of law. And I think what we've seen now is, is that nations breaking away from that particular thought process. Yeah, the, but, but strategy. The, 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 yeah, I hear you. But those listening would probably argue it's a vehicle that doesn't have full air pressure in its tires right now from the reaction we're seeing. Uh, last question to uh, Zafar Khan Saab before we take a break. Zafar Khan Saab, obviously you are um, part of the London chapter of the Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front. A aside from India, you know, revoking its steps and, and, its, and its move, which frankly it's not going to do, 
what do you want to see happen now? What, what do you want to see um, to, to, you know, what, what do you want to see from the United Nations? What do you want to see from Pakistan or even the U.S. in order to um, get out of this situation? Because frankly, I don't think Narendra Modi is going to move. Well, that may be the case, but uh, at the heart of this uh, conflict lies the sovereign right of the Kashmiri people to decide on their future status. And that has been a position for 72 years, and that in fact is the position of the people of Jammu and Kashmir and their leadership. And um, that is the only way forward uh, uh, to resolve this long-standing uh, issue and to uh, have peace and uh, prosperity in the subcontinent. Kashmiris have always wanted to be a bridge between India and Pakistan, bridge of peace between India and Pakistan. But it seems that uh, the, uh, the Modi government has really uh, uh, moved the goalpost goal uh, and, and uh, dismembered and annexed Jammu Kashmir illegally and has not uh, taken any co cognizance of uh, historic uh, context of the Kashmir issue. And uh, therefore, uh, the international community is also, in terms of uh, its uh, responsibilities in conflict with the, or, or Modi government is in conflict with the international government, international uh, okay. community. And Pakistan has okay. a role to play here, and Kashmiris are looking forward uh, to Pakistan to play that role. Zafar Khan Saab, I really appreciate your time on tonight's program and sharing your perspective. That was uh, Dr. Zafar Khan Saab joining us live on the radio. Listeners, this is Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar, and Zafar Iqbal in the studio. It's heating up here because we're going to continue talking about this topic, but stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Do not go away. Welcome back to part two of tonight's edition of Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar and Zafar Iqbal Saab in the studio. Joining us live here from Inspire FM Studios here in Luton. And of course, we're beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding areas tonight. And also to the good people of Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby and Peterborough through our partner stations across the nation. So far, we've been talking about the crazy crisis in Kashmir and we've been asking the question, whether it makes sense for the Kashmiri people to have an independent state or whether it makes sense for them to actually be a part of Pakistan and just a separate district of Pakistan. That's my question to you tonight on 01582481822. Coming up uh, in about half an hour's time, we'll be talking about back and muscle pain. Uh, interesting topic there if you have back or any kind of muscular pain. You can count me in for that topic. Dr. Talib Abu Bakr is going to be joining us uh, from Luton. He's going to be giving us all the ins and outs on the most common types of back pain that's been coming into his surgery in about half an hour's time. So stay tuned for that. And also, sadly, in about an hour's time, we're going to be going on to the very sad death that took place on Clacton on Sea, where hundreds of people attended the funeral of Malaika Shams and also Hadar Shams, um, very young Lutonians who passed away, sadly, um, in the sea at Clacton in Essex on the 8th of August and died later in hospital. We'll be remembering them 
and also trying to understand how this type of situation can be uh, avoided in about an hour's time. But of course, I've got my very special co-host with me on the program as well, Zafar Iqbal. Zafar Saab, Salaam Alaikum. Salaam of course, you know, the deaths of um, Malaika Shams and also Hada Shams, who's only 18 years of age. SubhanAllah, very, very sad situation there. Um, you know, not being in Luton myself, but, uh, you know, traveling quite a lot, I wasn't able to be there. But uh, um, what, what was the, the effect like of those two young, you know, 14-year-old and 18-year-old? Malaika was only 14, Hada was only 18. You know, we'll be talking more about them in about an hour's time. But uh, has there been much, uh, was, there, was there much of a procession and news about their passing? Yeah, I think it's been in the news quite a lot. And I think it's been quite tragic, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, I know for sure, I think lots of people have been commenting about it on WhatsApp groups, etc. Uh, I'm not sure there's been any processions, uh, not that I heard of. Um, but the, usually, I guess, you know, the, the families um, have been coming around and paying visits and lots of people have been paying visits, etc. And I think interesting enough, I think they were uh, both of them actually went to Denby, or one of them is a former student of Denby, and the other one was uh, was basically um, uh, uh, a student of Denby. And I think Denby School has opened up; it opened basically for people to come in and and if they wanted to uh, pay their respects uh, as well. So I think there's been there's been a lot of I guess a lot of tears I guess shed because these are. Yeah. These, yeah. these, are, these are young people, young kids who had lots, uh, lots to live for, uh, and, and I, I guess equally is a reminder that uh, life could be thirty seconds away. You know, uh, yeah, you know, de sorry, death could be seconds away. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. take a lot. Um, I think from what I can gather, they got into trouble right in, uh, uh, in, in the sea, and it was, it was a matter of minutes and seconds, basically. The life was really sad. Away. Really sad. Very, very I sad, mean, we'll yeah. be talking more about the two in, in about an hour's time. Uh, Malaika Shams and also um, Hadar Shams. Um, and obviously, if anybody, we, we've been trying to get in contact with the family, uh, maybe an uncle or family member, auntie, uh, whatever the case may be. I would love to learn more about um, the two who did die in that tragic accident. Um, if anybody does know a member, if you are a member of the family or you knew them in some way, I'd love to know more about them. Please give our studio a call on 01582-481822. I'd love to have you on the program in about an hour's time. But right now, let's go straight back to our main topic for uh, this hour, at least. We'll be talking about this for another 25 minutes, which is the decision to strip Indian-administered Kashmir of its autonomous status, um, apparently would free it from terrorism, according to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi which is what he said in a televised address last week to the Indian nation. The question is, was there terrorism in the first place? And does this actually make the situation worse for the Kashmiri people? Now, right now, I'm very lucky to be joined by two very special guests. I believe one is in the UK and one has dialed in from the US. I'm joined by Mohammed Junaid, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. He's an expert on political and social movements in Kashmir. Asalaamu Alaikum, Mohammed Junaid, are you on the line? I don't think we have him right now. Yeah, we, we, have, we, we, have, Muzam we have Muzammal Ayub online. Oh, oh we, have, we have Muzammal Ayub. Okay, fantastic. So we're going to go to Muzammal in a moment. And we've also got uh, Mehrush Tak who's the co-founder of the SOAS Kashmir Solidarity Movement. Assalamu alaikum, Mehrush. Wa alaikum salam. 
Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the line, sister. And also, um, as, as Zephyrsar mentioned, we've got Mazemel uh, Ayub on the line. He's the president of the World Kashmir Freedom Movement linked to the resistance leadership and also the freedom movement inside Indian occupied Kashmir. He's also the executive director of the Justice Foundation. Uh, Mazemel, if I may, let me start with you. Salam alaikum, first of all. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're live on the radio. Uh, Mazemel, of course, somebody that's involved with Kashmir at the level you are involved in. Of course, I know that you regularly attend the United Nations and you speak quite prominently on this topic with quite some passion, I might add. Um, we, we know that Pakistan has taken this topic to the United Nations today. Um, what's the latest on that according to what you understand? Well, at the moment, it's a bit of a stalemate. Uh, both sides have been um, claiming that they've had some kind of moral victory. At the moment, there's no real moral victory or any kind of victory, to be honest. Uh, the Security Council, the, the, the motion that happened today was more of a, an in-house discussion as opposed to a major uh, um, a revamp of the existing Security Council resolution. So this was not really something that could have been implemented or anything. It's more of an advisory position as it is. But more importantly, the, the current conditions of Kashmir are such that irregardless of what happens in those Security Council decisions, somebody or the other is going to veto it. And while these debates and discussions are going to go on, the people inside Kashmir are going to be continued, uh, going to be, uh, they're going to face the continued ban on uh, mobile connectivity, on internet, on landlines, on communications, on media, social media, anything you can think of is in ban. People are unable to go out into the streets. Uh, they are unable to buy medicine. They are unable to take... Uh, this is crazy. I mean, Mazemel Sahab, just sorry to interrupt you, but this is absolutely crazy because I, I was just reading recently as well that India is the only country in the world that has the highest amount of internet blackouts. Like, they literally disconnect the internet more frequently than any other nation on Earth. That's just ridiculous. Absolutely. And, it, you know, in your intro, you also mentioned about the uh, issue of terrorism. That is, is there actual terrorism inside Kashmir. Of course there is terrorism inside Kashmir. But uh, mm. the problem is that terrorism, terrorism is being perpetrated by the Indian army through their government. Um, and the media blackout is not something new to us. As you mentioned, India it has the highest level of uh, uh, media blackout, or rather internet connectivity blackouts in the world. And most of, the, most of the time that happens in Kashmir. At the moment, we've only seen the last maybe 12 days of internet connectivity being down. But generally, this is not a new, something new to us. It's been happening ever since the internet started. Connections are always limited. They don't allow people to uh, dissent in any shape or form. And if they do online, there are so many people that get shut down immediately by Twitter and Facebook. My own Facebook account has been suspended. Well, not suspended. It's been deactivated. And I'm banned from uh, returning onto it. And I'm not the only case. At least I live in the United Kingdom. Those people that are still living inside Kashmir or those that are living in India, uh, if the cyber cell finds them um, dissenting against Indian rule, what happens is that they get shut, not only do they get shut down, they get arrested. And more often than not, these boys, young boys that are getting arrested, we, you know, many of them, you never really hear back from again. We have the Public Safety Act, which is something that uh, you can be jailed under their law two years without trial. And if you have four yeah. or five different charges, it, you can be in jail for 10 years without trial. It, it's, cr it's crazy. But Mazema, let me ask you this, because you said that a lot of the terrorism is actually coming from the Indian side, and especially the Indian army. I'm sure India, um, if they were representing themselves here, they would disagree with that. In fact, um, Narendra Modi claims that actually 
um, the move that he has taken, which is to revoke the Article 370 and the special status that it afforded Kashmir, um, will actually, you know, um, you know, take away the separatism, the terrorism, and the corruption that has engulfed, he claims, Kashmir for so many years. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you would disagree with what he has said, but they would claim that there has been a lot of terrorism and a lot of quote-unquote jihadi activity coming from the Pakistani side. I mean, what say you to that? Well, it's, it's simple, really. Uh, ever since the BJP government have been uh, in formation, uh, especially the... You have to remember that the BJP have won the election again on the back of anti-Muslim sentiment. This is something we can't hide around uh, Hide around about this. We can't be around the bush. It is it is factual that they have won their elections time and again, both times, because of anti-Muslim sentiment. And that doesn't just necessarily stem from the uh, Kashmir issue, it stems even from the minority issues that exist inside India. The, obviously, you must have heard about uh, Delhi being the great capital of the world, the beef ban and the lynchings that happen. And when it comes to Kashmir, yeah. the nationalism that exists inside India is transferred in, in such a methodical way to hate the nation, to hate the Kashmiris, and to criminalize every single one of them. When it comes to the armed resistance, within the United Nations Charter, within the framework, there is a provision that allows occupation, if you are an occupied territory, to resist by any means necessary to protect your land and your freedom. And that is exactly what the people of Kashmir have been doing. And that is, and if it was any form of terrorism, then the United Nations would call the people of Kashmir resisting Indian occupation as terrorists, and they never have. Hello? Okay, yes, uh, absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's a very valid point. This is Zafar. I'm co-hosting co uh, the program here. Uh, can you hear me? Muzamil, can, can you hear me? Yeah. Right, okay. So, so while we sort out these uh, technical issues, we, we had uh, Muzamil Ayub, he, he was talking about the, the viewpoint uh, that, uh, that he's actually sort of uh, presented uh, from, from the India side, and he was responding to that. Um, can you, can you, can you hear me? No, okay. His, his line dropped. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on. Let's, uh, let's get a view from, uh, Marush. Uh, hi Marush. Uh, it's, uh, it's Zafar. Uh, I'm co-hosting with Abdul Akbar. Uh, I'm just, just trying to sort of get your view on the, the, I guess the marches that happened yesterday and then your view, uh, Hello. as to what can, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Marush? Not really. Can you hear me? It's, it's quite faint. It's quite faint. Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? So, so we're just trying to uh, try to get a, your view on the latest uh, events in Kashmir. Uh, perhaps you you have a com contact to con I mean uh, a comment to make on the events of the last couple of days. So it's on Kamarish. Can you hear me now? No, um, if your wife is uh, quite apologies, we, we're having a, a few technical issues here. Can you hear me now? Okay, all right. If you can hear me, perhaps you, you want to want a comment on the events of the last couple of days. I think she's calls ended. Uh, we do have um, Muhammad Junaid uh, on the line as well. Muhammad Junaid, uh, are you able to hear me? We we have some some technical issues in in the studio. Can can you hear me, Mohammed Junaid? No. Okay. So while we're trying to sort out those issues, uh, we have been talking about 
um, the decision by the Indian government to basically revoke Article 370, uh, an instrument, a legal instrument which tied Kashmir to uh, the Indian Union, to revoke it and basically to administer or govern uh, Kashmir uh, from from the centre. Uh, and we were talking about the fact that the net effect of that is that the aspirations of the Kashmiris, their, um, their, the possibility of, of them having uh, an independent voice, uh, an opportunity to either be part of Pakistan or be part of India, uh, that instrument or that voice is, is now uh, removed. Uh, and I think some analysts said that, that uh, this particular instrument that has been removed by presidential order is unconstitutional. There's been lots of people who have written about it in India and there's been a few challenges in the Indian uh, Supreme Court as to the validity uh, of the move. Uh, but having uh, having said that, that particular, uh, that particular sort of instrument um, which gave, I guess, a certain level of autonomy uh, to um, to Kashmir, it allowed uh, it allowed um, it allowed um, basically the Kashmiris to to try and um, uh, well to try and basically s seek an independent um, independent voice or independent way of uh, independence from from either uh, India and, and Pakistan. So this particular instrument. Uh, was actually included as part of accession. So if you if you think back to 1947 uh, partition between India and Pakistan, many of the states which now form um, form Pakistan, many sort of uh, regions uh, joined either India or Pakistan based on their population or the religious makeup of their population, um, and effectively uh, uh, they they chose one or the other. Uh, and those states which chose Pakistan obviously uh, became part of Pakistan and those chose India became part of the Union of India. And, and what's, what's happened here effectively now um, is that, that the, so the, the Kashmiri rulers at that time decided that, that they want to be, they want to... Uh, as salam can you hear? I can hear you loud and clear, we are back on the line, sir. Okay. But um, I, I was just listening to what you were saying, Zephyr Saab, Re really, really interesting. Uh, points you're making there. Um, we've actually got Merush Tak on the line as well. And before we go to uh, that sister, let me just welcome all our listeners tuned in to the radio tonight because this is, of course, Friday Night Live, uh, beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding area tonight, and also beaming out to the good people of Sheffield, Derby, Peterborough, and Nottingham through our partner stations across the nation that's right uh talking about kashmir right now and the conflict over there i'm going to go back to our special guest on the line and of course zafar saab uh on the radio at the same time uh, in about uh half an hour's time we'll be talking about back and muscular pain how many of you have been going through some back or muscular pain lately dr dalib abu Bakr, local gp will be joining us hopefully in the studio give us the lows and downs uh, ups and downs on that shall we say uh, and at the same time sadly we'll also be talking about the deaths that happened uh, to two Lutonians at Clacton on Sea um, just over a week ago uh, we'll be remembering them and also talking to the lifeguard Institute to find out how such deaths can be avoided and finishing the show off on the Luton Masjid's drive to pass it participate 
in uh, giving blood uh, donations. All of that and more coming up on the program in a bit. But let me straight away go to our next guest on the line for the Kashmir topic. It's uh, Mekrush Takas. Asalaamu uh, Alaikum, Mekrush. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the radio. Mekrush, um, in terms of the situation from your perspective, of course, you're co-founder of the SOAS Kashmir Solidarity Movement. And I know there was quite a large demonstration that took place outside the Indian Embassy in London recently. Um, how well was that attended? And do you think that demonstrations and showing solidarity with the Kashmiri people is actually going to make much of a difference? Or do you think some other action is needed to really help move the needle? Um, first of all, I mean, we need every kind of action that could uh, that we can do as Kashmiri people in the diaspora in Britain. Any action is important. And obviously, the more we consolidate and collectivize to create this action would be the, would be better. About, now, secondly, about the protests uh, outside the Indian High Commission, there have been a lot of protests since uh, the war, uh, abrogation of Article 370 um, about 12 days ago. Um, some of them have been organized by Kashmir Solidarity Movement. Some of them have been organized by other groups. And everything, as I said, is welcome in this situation. Um, the um, the big, the biggest protests uh, that have happened in in the last 12 days were, have been yesterday's protests outside the Indian High Commission, which was not organised by uh, KSM. It was organised by uh, Kashmiris from the diaspora, which is great. Like uh, uh, it's brilliant that so many people came out, and that you know there was a uh, central London was almost blocked by the number of people that came out outside the Indian High Commission, and we need that. Then uh, there was another protest that was organized outside Trafalgar, at Trafalgar Square at 5 p.m. Uh, yesterday evening, which was organized by KSM, plus many other uh, groups that have showed solidarity with Kashmiris, including uh, SOAS India Society, the South Asia Solidarity Group, and many more like that. So it's not just a few of us. Kashmir uh, Student Action is another group that came around, and they played a big part in organizing yesterday that's, evening. That's so that really nice. That, that's, that's really nice that there's lots of solidarity going around. Uh, very nice to, to hear about. But at the same time, um, I, I want to get your views on, for example, the actress uh, Priyanka Chopra, who, as you know, is a yeah. UNICEF goodwill ambassador. Um, but she came under fire this week for effectively scoffing at a Pakistani-American woman's challenging question to her. And what do you know about this? And what are your thoughts on Priyanka Chopra and the position she took? Sure. Before I come to Priyanka Chopra, I do have to say something more about the protest yesterday. What that Gigi? is that to a large extent, both these protests at the Indian High Commission and at Trafalgar Square were co-opted by other solidarity groups that were not Kashmiri. And that is a problem. And people who do show solidarity with us Kashmiris need to understand this at the moment, that it's not about them, it is about Kashmiri. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, people from Khalistan movement who are there, a lot of people, social, socialist workers party, a lot of people from Pakistan who became physical with Kashmiris yesterday. And that is not right. And I have to put this on record today with the many uh, people who do show solidarity with Kashmir, who stand with Kashmiris right now. And we really do need their support to understand that you cannot take over the Kashmiris' voices themselves. Now, coming to Priyanka Chopra, I think that, that's an important one too, because, you know, 
people like her who are Indians or celebrities in general have a big mass following and people follow them how even however apolitical they want to be people follow them as role models and in Priyanka Chopra's case she's also UN ambassador for peace so it is hypocritical of her to say that she supports her army but at the same time does not war but, uh, want war which is a, a contradiction in itself so she's happy to have a war as uh, if if it was um, if it came to it it was okay for her to have a war but yeah she doesn't mind she doesn't love them but at the same time she wouldn't mind them mind war to happen if it came to it so i yeah that was quite uh, that was quite hypocritical and i'm glad that a uh, journalist did ask her uh, that question at beautycon because where else will she ask her that question and the way priyanka chopra handled the the question was also uh, quite uh, unfeminist of her yeah absolutely absolutely I, i totally agree and you know it could it could be argued that a, a lot of bollywood actors and i i know a lot of listeners to this program frankly speaking probably watch a lot of bollywood but it has been argued um by many many commentators that the bollywood industry including a lot of the actors um you know fuel hate and islamophobia uh, and it's very sad to see that um you know the muslim community and other communities supporting bollywood when many of the actors actually um you know fuel a certain narrative which is very anti islam and frankly i would argue islamophobic merush uh, just stay on the line for a moment because i want to bring on um mohammed janechab uh, he's also a very important guest on tonight's program he is of course somebody i introduced earlier accidentally um he's assistant professor of anthropology at massachusetts college of liberal arts and he's also an expert on political and social movements in kashmir assalamu alaikum uh, mohammed janechab assalamu alaikum Thank you so much for joining us. You're live on the radio tonight here in the UK. Uh, Mohammed Janet Saab, what's your analysis on the dynamics that are at play right now in Kashmir, especially on the back of the move that Modi and his government have made? What are they up to? What what do you think is their agenda? And do you think that the Pakistani response has been adequate so far? Well, you know, this is uh, the 13th day since Krishna, Kashmir has been under information blockade and curfew. Uh, most people in Kashmir still uh, have to know what India has done to them. Uh, it was a very unilateral, uh, authoritarian move on the part of the Indian government. It is backed by uh, an, a party uh, called BJP, which, whose mothership is RSS. uh which is uh probably the largest uh, right wing paramilitary organization in the world um and so what kashmiris are facing right now is not only this information blockade where they don't know what has happened uh, they're also faced with a country where the loudest voices belong to um a, a party that is extremely anti kashmiri who treat kashmiris as an international enemy uh who should be shown their place and preferably eliminated and many kashmiris have for a very long time uh, known and felt that the ultimate agenda of this right wing uh streak within the indian uh, politics which has become the mainstream now is uh, that they want to remove kashmiri muslims from kashmir or at least turn them into a disempowered minority um so once people in kashmir realize what has happened once they come to know the full scale 
of yeah. uh, these um, moves, uh, there is going to be huge resistance. On the question of Pakistan, I mean, there is. Uh, Mohammed Jinnich, if I can ask you just to hold the line there for a moment, because we need to take a, a very short break, but we'll be right back in a moment um, with our guests on this topic and more. Stay tuned, listeners. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to part three of tonight's edition of Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar and Zafar Iqbal. Of course, we've been listening to Friday Night Live for the last hour on the radio this evening. Of course, we'll be talking about the Kashmir topic and some of the challenges that have been going on there. Uh, I've got some very special guests on the line still. We're going to be wrapping up the topic uh, with them in a moment. But coming up imminently is another interesting topic on back pain and how we can deal with that. Dr. Talib Abu Bakr is in the studio live here on the radio. Don't forget, of course, we are beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding areas tonight and also to the good people of Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby and Peterborough through our partner stations across the nation. Of course, don't forget, top story tonight is that Thames Valley police officer has been killed in Berkshire. That's right. A police officer was killed when he was dragged along by a vehicle while attending a reported burglary. PC Andrew Harper, only 28, who got married just four weeks ago, died at about 11.30 on Thursday evening in Berkshire. Thames Valley Police have said that 10 males aged between 13 and 30 have been arrested on suspicion of murder and remain in custody at various stations. I must also remind you, uh, coming up on tonight's show, we'll be remembering the deaths of two Lutonians who also passed away at Clacton-on-Sea just over a week ago. And their funeral happened only uh, a couple of days ago here in Luton and was attended by hundreds. That's coming up in about half an hour's time. But uh, before we actually move on to our back pain topic, which uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, let me go back to one of our guests on the line, uh, Mehrush, who is a co-founder of the SOAS Kashmir Solidarity Movement. Uh, Mehrush, salam alaikum once again. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you so much for holding on the line uh, with us. Uh, I want to get some final words from you and also, um, you know, fellow protesters and students around um, SOAS. Of course, if people don't know SOAS, is the School of African and Oriental uh, Studies, or Oriental and African Studies, and get that right. Um, and uh, obviously the student movement is quite vast uh, and quite active, especially when it comes to Kashmir. But from your sp- perspective, Mehrush, just in maybe 30 seconds, what needs to happen next? Where do you see this going and how, how do you see reconciliation happening? Well, um, I don't think uh, India is going to stop any, uh, just now, it's not going to stop its atrocities right now. So we need to keep putting pressure on the Indian government through our own British government at the moment, through the UN. So keep writing to MP, speak to MP, speak to your local councillors to generate this grassroots movement where people of Britain understand what the Kashmir issue is. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you so much, Mehrush, for for joining us uh, on the radio. Appreciate your time tonight. And let me also get some final words from um, Mohammed Junaid as well, who's an assistant professor 
of Anthropology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, and he's joining us um, from the U.S. Uh, Mohammed Junaid, uh, we, we lost you a couple of times, uh, pretty bad connection uh, today that we have, but um, I'll ask you the same question that I asked my guest Mehrush, which is, where do you see this going now? I mean, what lies in store for the people of Kashmir and what will happen next from your perspective and your professional um, academic opinion? Um, you know, I just came back uh, spending a month in Kashmir and spent a bunch of time in Delhi as well. Um, I know that this is the beginning of a very dark chapter for Kashmiris in general, but uh, many Indians uh, who are liberal-minded and care about their country as well, uh, they also see um, an imminent danger to India, to their politics, to their uh, sense of, uh, you know, um, whatever, uh, right. And um, the BJP, the RSS, is a big threat to India as well. Uh, what I see happening going forward is that um, there will be a, a section of the Indian community who will rise up against this uh, nonsense. And, uh, of course, you know, we have to see that RSS, the BJP ideology, is a threat not only to Kashmiris, but to the entire region. It is going to, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, take over um, Azad, Jammu and Kashmir. It's trying, going to continue to have a situation of war with Pakistan. It's going to keep poking China, although they, India does not want to go to war with China. It is going to keep arresting uh, activists within India. So many Indians, I felt, although they're silenced currently, but they're not going to tolerate this for long. So I, I do think that yeah. we do not need to completely despair. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And Kashmiris, of yeah. course, will rise. They have always gone, risen. They have gone through many such instances before. And uh, mm. they will do so again. But they need allies. They need allies across, the, not only in, in Pakistan, but also within India as well as globally. I hope so. I mean, you paint a very optimistic picture, and I really hope that the picture you've painted uh, this evening with us on the program is realized and realized very soon. Uh, Mohammed Junaid Saab, we really appreciate your time on the program tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, that was Mohammed Junaid Saab from the uh, uh, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. And listeners, this is Friday Night Live. Uh, we're going to be moving on to our next topic of the evening tonight. And just a very quick reminder, also coming up on tonight's program, we'll be talking about the Clacton sea deaths of two young Lutonians. Uh, we'll be talking to the Royal National Lifeboat Institution on some of the safety aspects of beach safety. And um, we'll be finishing off tonight's program by talking about Luton's um, Masjid Drive to participate in blood donations. That's also coming up on uh, tonight's program. But my next question, my next question is actually uh, for Zafar Saab. Zafar Saab, are you there? I am indeed. Are you wide awake? Uh, just about. <laughs> Zephyr, so I've got to ask you a very deeply personal question, yep. and I want everybody listening to the radio right now um, just to close your ears. No, I'm kidding. But uh, Zephyr, my question to you is, have you, you're, you're a young man of, I don't know, 69, I'm guessing? Uh, just about, yeah. I think more like 72. <laughs> more, more like 72, yeah. But yeah. All right, fair enough. You're adding a few years. I know. But 
I mean, you're a young man, but I want to ask you, you know, lots of life experience. And I wanted to ask you, have you ever had back pain before? Well, you know something? Thankfully, I haven't had back pain. But I know very close friends who've had back pain very you, badly. Are you honestly, you're honestly saying to me you've never had back pain in your life. Surely you've had some aspect of back pain. Everyone has. Even I have in my young, youthful years of 38. Uh, I, I've been quite fortunate, to be honest. Wow. So wow. Then you should, be, you should be joining us for this topic because, you know, I, I was reading some statistics in preparation uh, for this topic for our listeners and you know the statistics are crazy like um this is based on back awareness week which, ha which happened uh, recently um almost 10 million britons suffer pain almost daily that results in a major impact on their quality of life you can count me into one of those 10 million by the way mm. um the crazy thing is up to 28 million britons are living with chronic pain that's not just back pain but that's chronic pain in general uh, you can count me into one of those 28 million. Around 5.6 million working days in the UK are lost each year due to back pain, second only after stress. Uh, you can count me in those 5.6 million for the back pain and the stress, by the way. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, and we're laughing, but it can really have an impact on someone's life, especially if you've never experienced this type of pain before. But right now, um, we are being joined in the studio with Dr. Talib Abu Bakr. He's a local GP here in Luton, and he's going to give us the ins and outs of back pain. Asalaamu Alaikum, Dr. Abu Bakr. Malik Salaam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, sir. Nice to have you in the studio on this fine Friday evening. Scary um, figures, hey? Dr. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Dr. Abubakar, first of all, let's just start off. I mean, you run a surgery yourself, and I'm sure um, you have a lot of experience in dealing with, you know, back pain and people coming in um, complaining of back pain. Can you tell us a bit about that and what, what, kind of, what kind of symptoms do you see coming in through the doors of your surgery? Well, on an average day, I probably see one in four people with musculoskeletal pain. So that's back pain, hip pain, knee pain, neck pain, shoulder pain. Um, back pain is the commonest out of all of them and I, I guess as humans what's happened is going back to our ancestors who are up and about walking and physical for their jobs looking for food hunting for food cultivating looking after your children and we've now got a very immobile population we're sitting yeah, down true. far too long and our muscles are designed to move so when you sit down, particularly in chairs, um, the muscles start to get weak and, and lazy, which then causes instability of the bones around your back, and you get movement. And when you get movement, uh, your body doesn't like movement of bone because it reacts a bit like a broken bone. You, want, you start to get pain, and then what happens is the whole muscle goes into spasm. And when your uh, muscles go into spasm, uh, lactic acid builds up and you get extra pain. My goodness, and that's effectively how it happens. And you make a really interesting point about our lifestyles because a lot of us have desk jobs where we're kind of sitting behind a laptop. And also, every single one of us listening to the program tonight actually has a mobile phone in our pocket. And um, I think posture, uh, as, you, as you're kind of alluding to, has a, has a real impact on, on, on the way our bones move around and stuff, especially your neck as well, Dr. Saab, because, yeah. I mean, you know, you just have to go into 
um, a train or a bus or just look around you outside. Yeah. Everyone's got their necks bent down looking at their smartphones, right? Surely that's going to cause some kind of pain somewhere uh, around your uh, I mean, spine. It, we're seeing children getting neck pain and back pain now, which we didn't see before mm. because they've got very supple muscles and stuff. But it's all to do with their smartphones. Mm. If you think of your head, an average head weighs about five kilograms. Mm. If you take a weight of five kilograms and just put your arm out holding that weight, literally within five minutes, your shoulders will hurt, your uh, upper back will start to hurt, everything starts to hurt. Well, we're expecting this thin uh, group of muscles called your neck to hold up this five kilogram at an angle that it's not supposed to be at. So when you think about how you look at your smartphones, your head's tilted forward looking down, and then you're expecting your muscles to hold that five kilogram weight for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and a half, two hours. And we wonder why it starts to ache and become painful. Very, um, very interesting. That's that's absolutely uh, makes a lot of sense there. But I mean, my, my the question I'd have for you as well, um, Dr. Abubakar, is that um, when we look at back pain, I'm assuming there's different types of back pain. Some people might have pain, maybe the lower back, maybe um, some others may have it in the upper back or shoulders or neck, as you've suggested. Um, what sort of back pain do you see as the most common coming through the doors of your surgery? Is it lower back or, or upper back? Yeah, yeah, lower back is by far the most. Um, and then the upper back and neck. Um, the neck is second and probably the mid, mid back is third. But lower back is by far the most. Uh, and then neck, um, and it okay. is, uh, and and you can almost predict it by what people do, or yeah. Not I mean, do. I, I'll, t I'll tell you about a situation I had. Maybe you can. You don't have to diagnose me, but maybe uh, you can offer me some advice, and yeah. others might be able to, um, uh, you know, benefit from that. Which is, I, I, my, my father um, isn't very good at walking. You know, he's got uh, very weak legs, and he uses a wheelchair. He's eighty years old. Uh, mashallah, he's had a Excellent. nice, uh, uh, healthy life. Alhamdulillah. Um, however. You know, he does need help putting on his shoes. And, um, you know, I, I actually bent down uh, on one occasion, probably a few months ago now, um, to actually help him put his shoes on. And all of a sudden, you know, felt a bit of a crack. And I was like, ouch. Yep. And, yeah, I, I was I, I was knocked out for a six. Literally, I was I was down. I couldn't move. And uh, I think, I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a spasm is what you call it, but I literally was stuck there and I was like, guys, I can't move. I could talk, I could move my arms yeah. and wave my arms around, but I was just stuck on the on, on, on the floor, literally. Yeah. Well, what, what uh, there's various things that could happen. If you think of your back, it's, it's a fairly simple structure. You've got blocks of bone. In between the bones, you've got cartilage. The purpose of the back is to protect the spinal cord that runs through it, which supplies all the nerves to the rest of the body. Uh, the cartilage is there to sponge, to absorb shock, yep. um, yeah. and they're all designed to stay upright in one position. Now, if we're chronically uh, not allowing the muscles to stay strong, the block starts to move, and mm. to protect the spinal cord, what then happens is the whole of the, what we call the paravertebral muscles, all the muscles around your spine go into spasm. Um, so that's one thing that could have happened. It could have acutely gone into spasm. Or secondly, uh, everything's weak, so the cartilage moves in between the bones and then it, that knocks against your nerve, which then causes muscles to go into spasm as well. Or you suddenly get a shooting pain uh, because the nerve's been irritated, either the spinal cord or the, the nerves that run out of the spinal cord, which most people know as sciatic nerve, which is the main one that supplies the lower leg. Mm -hmm. um, so the disc must have moved or your back's gone into spasm. 
Now imagine if um, if just say your hand, your my hand doesn't hurt, but if I squeeze my hand tight now and hold it mm -hmm. for five minutes, the blood supply is slowing down, going through the muscle because it's in spasm now. Lactic acid builds up. Now in fifteen minutes, my hand's going to start to hurt, even though I've had no problem with my hand. The fact I'm not moving it, my hand will start to hurt. Within mm -hmm. twenty to twenty-five minutes, that hand will be very painful to move because the lactic acid is causing a lot of pain, which we call cramp. Well, that's what happens mm -hmm. in the back. What people do is they stop moving, and because of the pain, they move even less. And then what happens, the muscles get weak, the bones move, then the whole thing goes into spasm, which is what I said earlier. And then that becomes a chronic pain. So we get into this vicious cycle. The pain causes us to move less, we move less, the pain gets more, and then the whole problem starts, the muscles start to weaken, and then nerves and ligaments start to get involved. Amazing. And you, you, you actually remind me of something the nurse said to me when I went to the doctors to um, check to get it checked out. And she was basically like, use it or lose it. And I was like, how can I use it? It yeah. hurts when I use it. And you effectively have to fight that pain temporarily. Uh, yeah, what I suggest is, you know, imagine you had your hand in, in spasm. Just tiny little movements will start to get the blood supply going. So if your back's mm. in acute spasm, you don't want to be doing, you know, backflips and everything like that in one go. You start off gently, yeah. you just gently start moving rather than staying still, you gently start moving. So the line I always use is don't go past the pain, go up mm. to the tension, go, but get some movement going rather than staying still. That's really, really interesting. Uh, Dr. Dalip Abubakar, I've got loads more questions for you, but we'll come back to you in a brief moment because I'm going to go back to the listeners right now. Listeners, this is, of course, uh, Friday Night Live. You're tuned in to uh, Inspire FM or Salam Radio, or one of our partner radio stations uh, across the UK. So welcome to all of you tuning in on this Friday evening. Of course, you're joining me, Abdul Akbar and Zafarik Balsab. Uh, from the studios of Inspire FM and of course we're beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding areas tonight and also to the good people of Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby and Peterborough through our partner state. Wow, okay, that beep uh, didn't sound very healthy uh, so I think what we want to do is perhaps uh, bring the discussion back to the studio again. Right, okay, so back pains, we talked about, uh, I, I guess, um, some of the causes of back pain, inactivity being one of the, the main causes of back pain. Um, and I guess, how do we get people to, to encourage the people? And I know the GPs now are referring a lot more people to musculoskeletal sort of uh, specialists, therapists and, and you know physiotherapists. Is that the way forward for the for the NHS, uh, rather than painkillers and stuff? Well, uh, NICE guidelines brought out uh, guidance recently um, in 2017, then updated in 2018. Um, and what they're trying to do is actually a mixture of things. Firstly, prevention is by far yeah, the best, sure. because once you get back pain, then it becomes more difficult. And as, as I mentioned earlier, the cycle of pain gets worse. So prevention is huge. So keep moving. Um, Lose weight. Mm -hmm. Weight is a massive, massive problem. Excuse the the pun, but if you're um, ten kilograms overweight, sure, um, like one of these chairs is probably about five kilograms. Well, you're carrying two of those chairs with you twenty four hours a day, seven days mm -hmm. a week. Well, what's that doing to your back? Sure. Um, I know my back starts to hurt if I just carry the one chair. Well, most people are carrying three or four chairs and wonder why their back's hurting. We're spending nearly fourteen to twenty hours. 
sitting, sitting down. down. Yeah. Um, I look at my average day and I'm just as guilty as the next person. I sit at work 10 office, hours a day. Office-based office jobs tend to sort of, yeah. Well, it's not just office-based style. Um, you know, my mother sits and watches TV eight mm. hours a day maybe, sitting down. Um, and we were talking earlier before we came online, you know, if you look at um, some of the religions, most religions in the world, they sit on the floor. Mm. Because when you're sat on the floor, you're not, your back's not being supported by chairs, the back doesn't get lazy, everything's moving constantly to get yourself comfortable. So your muscles are working and having mini exercises all the time. So what happens is your back gets stronger, you're much more flexible. And mm. movement is really important because you keep your back flexible. So that's important. A healthy diet keeps your weight down, but also has lots of nutrients that keeps your muscles nice and supple and also keeps them young. Uh, exercise such as yoga, Pilates, any flexible exercises, simple walking, all of these things help. So that's the prevention side in a very quick, short way. If you do suffer from back pain, and 1 in 15 people will have back pain, we see 1 in 15 people one will, in go 15. The, will go to their GPs with back pain. The number of people who suffer from back pain is, is much bigger. Mm. But 1 in 15 will uh, approach a medical uh, person for back pain. Mm. Uh, for those, uh, when it flares up, the simple thing would be to just start gentle exercise, gentle movement, Painkillers such as paracetamol, ibuprofen, if you can take it, ice packs or heat pads, and keep moving. Don't just go to bed. That's really important unless your doctor tells you otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and then if that doesn't work, most back pains will be acutely painful for about four to six weeks, and then it will start to improve as long as you're doing your stretching exercises, as long as you're moving. About If that's not working, then then you need to um, think about whether we need physiotherapy, chiropractic, or osteopath. Okay, all right. Um, so I, I guess these are, these are typical sort of ways to deal with the situation. I think you talked about prevent, prevention, and I think there's a lot more emphasis now, isn't there? A lot of the national health resources are being diverted towards prevention type of things, you know, healthy living, healthy lifestyles, uh, etc. Uh, I've got a question, if I may. About yeah, of course. You, yeah, Fire of course. away. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sam, I've got a question for you. And I was just listening to what you were saying. Really interesting. But my, my other question would be um, sleeping position, because um, a, a lot of people get back pain just merely because of the position that they sleep in. I was wondering, um, what, what is the right position to sleep in? Is it on your back? Is it on your side? Is it, you know, uh, what's the right position from a medical perspective? Um, sleeping positions really start to cause people problems when um, all the other bits start to add up and then the, the sleep is just the extra bit on top. So okay. what I mean by that is that all the other things we talked about, posture and lack of movement, all of that causes you to get to the tipping point and then when you sleep badly on top of that, then it starts to uh, get worse. But, but I think the mattresses so add to add The to mattresses, the you, you need a good, uh, a strong mattress, not soft. Uh, not yeah. soft. Not soft because what you, your back is designed to be straight. Mm. And there's a little curve in it and everything. But um, if your mattress is soft, the bones aren't aligned, they sink. And then the ligaments and everything work harder to try and keep it straight. So then they tie and give you pain. What about those memory phone mattresses? Yeah, that you they, can they're get, quite like good that, because they do give you support. See, Yeah, they give you support. So they're quite good. Mm. What you don't want is an old mattress that's just sags. Mm. Mm. Um, so... 
and I, I normally say to people, sleep in what's comfortable for you. If you've got sciatica so pain and things like that, so you can have... So going to have to chuck out his mattress, I think. <laughs> exactly. So I, 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 I did that a long time ago, to be honest. I think I've, I've been... Yeah, he chucked it out very, 20 very, years ago. He's yeah. still got this new one for 20 years now. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I, I well, really interesting um, advice there. Um, Dr. Um, Abubakar, we're running out of time, but if there's any other bits of advice that you wanted to give in maybe a minute, anything else that's really important for our listeners to know about, about back pain? back pain i mean it's, it's a huge topic on its own but lose weight exercise regularly flexibility um things like yoga and uh, pilates is really good for you eat healthy stay stress-free wow. wow that's that's all my wish list effectively yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, lot, it. lot of very easy things there to achieve isn't it <laughs> there's lots yeah. of things out there um, yeah. yeah, lose weight. All, all the, that's that's effectively. Stress free. I'm probably uh, wrong on that one. Wish list for I would say reduce. I would say reduce your stress because ev- there is stress everywhere. Reduce your stress. True. Learn have islands of moments where you can be happy and stress free for those moments. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, really appreciate your time, no uh, Doctor Dalib Abubakar. Really appreciate your advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Friday Night Live, sir. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you very much, Slaw, listeners, this is Friday Night Live, and of course, you're listening to me, Abdul Akbar, and Zafar Iqbal Saab um, on the line. And of course, um, we're going to be taking a short break in about a minute's time. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, a couple of topics coming up in the next half an hour. We're going to be talking about the sad Clacton sea deaths that took place um, just over a week ago um, with two young Lutonians who passed away sadly in Clacton. And also, we'll be talking about the Luton Mosque's drive to participate in getting more blood donations. Looking forward to that topic as well. So far on the program tonight, we've had lots of interesting topics. We'll be talking about the Kashmiri topic and the situation between Narendra Modi and Imran Khan. And of course, Kashmir, um, you know, struggling in the middle there. And we've just talked about an awesome topic on back and muscle pain. Don't forget, um, two more topics coming up on the next part of tonight's program. Of course, this is Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar and Zafrik Baltal. We'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away. This is Inspire on 105.1 FM. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to part four of tonight's edition of Friday Night Live on Friday the 16th of August 2019. I'm your host, Abdul Akbar, beaming down to you from Inspire FM Studios here in Luton. Uh, of course, beaming out to the good people of Luton and surrounding areas and also to the good people of Sheffield, Nottingham, Derby and Peterborough through our partner stations across the nation. Of course, I'm also joined by uh, Zafar Iqbal Saab. Zafar Saab, Assalamualaikum. I'm still here, mate. I'm still here. Don't worry. I'm still here. All right. All right. Just making sure that you are on the line because, of course, on the line in a moment, we're going to go and talk about a very, very delicate topic which has affected the Luton community over the past week. That's coming up in a moment. But also, we're talking about the blood donations drive that has been taking place uh, in the local community as well that's coming up in about 10 to 15 minutes time as well looking forward to uh hearing more about that from the organizers but i want to go on to 
uh, a very sensitive topic tonight because it is, of course, based on the back of um, a brother and sister who passed away in Clacton-on-Sea just over a week ago. And just over a couple of days ago, hundreds of people have attended the funeral of two siblings who died after getting into difficulty in the sea. A 14-year-old Malaika Shemis from Luton was pulled from the sea at Clacton, Essex, on the 8th of August and died later at hospital. Uh, she'd been in the water with her brother, Hader Shemis, 18, who died on Saturday and with a cousin who has survived and expected to make a full recovery. Now, family members from Pakistan traveled to attend the funeral with others traveling from across the UK. Um, earlier this week on Wednesday, Essex Coroner's Court heard that uh, Hader died on Saturday from pneumonia and brain damage brought on by the immersion in the water. And Essex's coroner's office, Officer Gemma Cook, said that a lifeguard performed CPR on Malaika and she was taken to Colchester General Hospital with her brother. Now, a post-mortem examination has recorded that her provisional cause of death as immersion in water. Now, it is said that the court sympathy to the teenager's family was with them at the, that this dreadful time. And the sibling's cousin, a 15-year-old girl, was also pulled from the water. And as I mentioned, she's expected to make a full recovery. Now, the three got into difficulty near Clacton Pier last week at about 1.40 in the afternoon. Now, the teenager's father, Shemes Riaz, is quoted by the BBC um, of saying that urging effectively parents to make sure that their children can swim. Now, in a letter to parents at Denby High School, which Malaika attended and where Hader had been a pupil, head teacher Donna Neely Hayes addressed the great sadness of their deaths. Now, Zephasab, I, I don't know, you, you, I think you heard about this as well in the community, um, and I know the family was very well known. Um, how has this impacted those around you, Zephasab, and those that you know? Well, I think I mentioned earlier on, to be honest, I think it's, it's, a, it's a shock. Uh, I think my, uh, my my children, I think, went to the same school as, as uh uh, as those, uh, those those children, uh, and it was a bit of a shock to be honest. I wasn't in the country when when I heard the news, and and you know when they talked about it, it was quite distressing to be honest. Uh, and I'm sure it's been distressing to really distressing uh, for for the, the I guess the school friends of theirs, uh, as as well as uh, the family. Uh, but you know, I think as yeah. as I mentioned earlier on, uh, it does it does make you reflect a little bit. Right? And when something like this happens, when somebody so young who's got everything to live for uh, suddenly depart, it does remind you of the fact that life is so fragile, and there's so much that needs to be done, right, to actually sort of try and try to stay safe, um, I guess, and uh, you know, constantly sort of being aware of of uh, uh, you know uh, safety, right, when when you are on trips and and seasides, etc. Because it's not necessarily that that if you're living away from the seaside, you're always aware of the the dangers and risks. Uh, associated yeah. with with uh, swimming on, on uh, at seaside, so which I I, yeah. I, I, I guess um, you know Nick is going to talk a little bit more about uh, who's, who's our, our guest today. Yeah, uh, that, that's right, and I, I love what you said about safety there. And I mean, you know, we've got the um, new Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking about you know improving safety on the streets, and of course, um, this is all on the, the on the news that a police officer was killed 
when he was dragged along by a vehicle just last night when he attended a reported burglary PC, Andrew Harper, only 28. Wow. What's really sad is he got married only four weeks ago. Extremely and sad. And he died yeah. last night, Thursday night at 11.30. Horrible, horrible situation. Um, but I do want to go on to our guest, as uh, Zafasab, you mentioned, because um, our guest, uh, Nick Ayers, he's from the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. And they're a charity, they're the largest charity that apparently saves lives at sea around the coasts of the UK. Amazing work they're doing. And uh, we've got Nick on the line, who actually um, does, does work for them. And uh, he's mm. on the, uh, he's, he's a community safety partner uh, with them. Uh, Nick, uh, good evening to you, sir. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for having me. That Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Nick. You're live on the radio. And, you know, of course, Nick, you've, you, heard, you heard my intro, I'm assuming, and you heard mm, about the yeah. tragic deaths we had of two Lutonians on, on Clacton uh, by Clacton Pier. And um, it's yeah. really sad to, to the community here that this has happened. Um, but your charity does some fantastic work trying to save people that get themselves into difficult situations. What sort of work do you do exactly? Yeah, I mean, firstly, condolences out to the family, the wider community um, of this tragic, horrible incident. You know, drowning doesn't just affect the the, the immediate family; um, it really does affect the wider wider community. Um, so, you, the RNLI it provides a twenty four hour, um, seven days a week lifeboat crew, um, and that's made up of mostly volunteers. Um, mm who quit their jobs on the on the ring of the pager um, and launch a lifeboat. Um, we also operate a lifeguard service as well, where um, we have just over um, 240 beaches in the UK and Ireland um, that goes alongside our 238 RNLI lifeboat station. And that's our sort of immediate rescue service, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. And then we also have a range of other activities that we try and reach a wider community um, at these coastal locations and also inland as well. So that's our education teams um, where we have volunteer education presenters inland and out on the coast. Um, there's a team of community safety, so the team that I work with. Um, and we also have volunteers out on the coast delivering those community safety messaging we're sort of integrated into those communities, um, getting across safety messages that are relevant at that sort of that town or that village um, yeah. in, the, in the right community. And Nick, quick question for you, if I may, because mm. you're, you're talking about safety messages. And, and we heard that mm. tragically, um, the two youngsters that died by Clacton Pier just last week um, yeah. died, according to the coroner, um, with, with immersion. What exactly does that mean when somebody dies of immersion? Is that effectively drowning? Is, is that what we call drowning yeah. or, or what? Yes, yes. So drowning, it could be it could be fairly fairly quick, fairly sudden, um, or it mm -hmm. can be a delayed onset. So you might heard, hear the term secondary drowning, um, where it can occur seventy two hours later, so about three days later. How, how does that how um, does that work? A, then? It's a horrible way to go. You know, your body's trying to flush out. The, the salt water that's in your lungs, basically. Um, and that could be a teaspoon of, of salt water um, wow. and a tablespoon of fresh. Wow. Um, so it's a tragic way to go. Um, 
and it and it's a horrible horrible thing and it does really rock the community that the people are involved in a tea a tablespoon of water is enough to kill you if it gets into the lungs that that is that kind of puts everything into perspective it really does yeah it's a lot of salt i guess um that that we just can't handle but just another question if i may nick which is mm, yeah. um you know, we talked about we were talking about safety here as well, and obviously, with the weather as good as it has been of late, um, a lot of people will be going down to the beaches and, and enjoying themselves. Um, what sort of safety advice would you have for our listeners, especially for those who aren't very good at swimming? And I, I've even heard stories where people who are very good at swimming getting caught up with yeah. with the tide, etc. Yeah, that, that's it. We, you know, we, we're trying to get a message across to say read the safety signage if there are some it's like when you go to a forest inland location there's often those signs available saying the do's and the don'ts where you can walk where you can't walk exactly the same when you go to a waterside location they are there we just need to spend a little time just looking for those if there's um, supervision available um, like your beach patrol your lifeguards or your wardens Go and ask them, especially if you're not sort of familiar with that environment. Go and check in with them. Ask where the safest places to go are, um, where the, the places where you can and you can't go. And then if you do get into trouble, um, if you are at your depth, there's a simple life-saving um, message that we are trying to get out to the wider community. And it backs our um, drowning prevention campaign, which is our respect the water campaign and you can google it just google it type it in respect the water um, it's linked to the rnli and it's a simple message of float okay so it's really easy for us to sit here now and say if you get into trouble in the water float on your back um but mm. it is the ultimately the best position to get into if you are in difficulty in the water and it's by extending your arms out extending your legs out making sure you're airway is clear of the water and spending around about 90 seconds okay and again it's really easy for me to say this right now but if you can do that it will really strengthen that that sort of um, ability to cope in the situation that you're in from here you can then wave you can shout for help um, and it's like in any kind of situation try not to panic panic is the the thing that's going to get you um, yeah, if you're that's a bystander, Absolutely. You know, if you're a bystander, don't jump in after them. Find something that floats, like a football, a life ring, a piece of equipment that you can reach with, like a stick, um, and dial 999 or 112 and ask for the emergency services. If you're not sure who it is, whether it's the Coast Guard if you're down at the coast or the Fire and Rescue Service, just, just describe what is happening in front of you describe someone's in the water they're in trouble um find out some landmarks and um, that's the easiest way so don't enter the water try and find something that that you can rescue them with do you know what nick the advice you give about uh floating on your back is, is mm. fantastic advice i mean i i'm not the best swimmer on the planet yeah i can swim mm. but not very far but one thing i yeah. can do and one thing i learned to do um is float on my back and and, and yeah. float without panicking and i think if there's anything that folks should take away from this especially if you're not a very good swimmer mm -hmm. or you, you don't know how to float on water and it's it's okay you don't have to be ashamed if you can't do that but definitely take time to take your kids out to the swimming exactly. pool it, it, and just 
get lessons, I guess. It's, it's exactly the same as if you, you know, you go on a skiing holiday, you know, you're not just going to go and book a trip and go down on the, the, the steepest run. You know, you're not going to take right, your mountain right. bike out before you even ride a mountain bike. You know, be aware of the hazards around the water like you would on those mountain bike trails or, or ski seasons or whatever. You know, treat it with the same respect as that. You know, go and learn how to have a swim. Um, learn how your body reacts in the water. Um, and then, then then you can enjoy it. You know, you can know what yeah. to look out for. You know? Absolutely. Nick, Nick one final question for me. Uh, Clacton I can't um, hear the, listen, the, the other... It's blank. <laughs> can, so can you, can you not hear me when I, when I speak? Okay. All right. That's... I don't. I don't think Nick can hear, hear you. Um, so, no, so, I, but anyway, I can't hear any, um, anything. Sorry. No, no worries at all, Nick. Let me go ahead and and thank you for your time and your advice, and of course, once again, share our thoughts and condolences uh, with yes, the family definitely. of those two Lutonians as well. Nick, really appreciate your time from the Royal National no Lifeboat Institution, sharing that awesome thank advice. You. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right, listeners, this is Friday Night Live. And, of course, we've got a few minutes left of tonight's program. And um, what an interesting program it has been thus far. But, Zafra Saab, I mean, this just goes to show, you know, we do need to get those really important skills for life. And one of them is you know, at least floating in the water on your back. Well, swimming, I'd say. Swimming is a really, really important life. Swimming is the the, the the ideal, but I mean, as a minimum, especially if you're going to get into the water. I love Nick's um, analogy there, which is you're not going to go down, you know, swim, uh, skiing off the piste uh, mm. unless you've taken proper skiing lessons, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really good analogy. Indeed, indeed. I and mean, I think... water, water looks so approachable when you see it. You see people having fun mm. and having a good time, but it can be get very dangerous, very deadly quite quickly if you, mm. if you don't know what you're doing. Well, it's true. It's not, just a, it's not just a sea. If you remember a while back, uh, I recently married a couple in Dubai. Uh, yeah. Basically passed away in a swimming pool, didn't they? So they managed to get, yeah, get into trouble true. and it was like within minutes and seconds it was all over. Uh, yeah, and it, it can happen anywhere, not just in Dubai. It can happen yeah. anywhere in the world where there Indeed, is a swimming yeah. pool. You just need to make sure you're well prepared for what you are about to get yourself into and respect don't take the any water risks, i guess yeah. yeah awesome well let's move on to our uh final topic of this evening listeners um because it is a very interesting topic and i'm looking forward to hearing more about this with our, our final guest of this evening on the line and of course um zephyr Saab, i think you know a bit about this as well which is um mosques in and around luton have been participating in a blood donations dry, which is very exciting. Um, and Zafar Saab, is uh, Dr. Abu Bakr still there? Oh, yes, yes, he's still here and he's, he's, right. he's willing to contribute uh, to this particular topic. Oh, yeah, topic. I, I need his contribution in a minute because I would, I would want his expert opinion on um, blood donations because, you know, a lot of people say that, um, you know, um, they, don't, they won't ever need blood and they don't want to take uh, donated blood for all kinds of reasons. So... I would love the uh, doctor's opinion on that in a moment. But before we do that, let's go straight to Imran Beg, who is the main driver behind this um, blood donation drive campaign in Luton, which I think is awesome. Imran Saad, Salaikum. Alhamdulillah. How are you doing, brother? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, alhamdulillah, bro. Thank you for joining us on the program. We've got about eight minutes left 
to really hear about this awesome work that you've been doing. So tell us what's been going on and how is it going so far? Yeah, so Alhamdulillah, um, we've started the drive. Um, we've done a few instances last year and, and continuing this year. Um, it's just to get uh, the participation of um, our immediate community, the Muslim community, and as well as the wider community, um, up um, in terms of um, participating, giving blood. Um, now, to be honest, myself, I've, I've been guilty of this myself for many years. I, I hadn't give, given blood till about just over a year ago. Um, and then, to be honest, like, that's when I found out how, how much of an acute problem it really is. Just to kind of illustrate it, um, for example, um, the BAME community in the UK, we are 15% of the population, um, but the blood donors um, uh, who actually donate blood from our community is about 5%. So, subhanAllah, so, so, like so what you're saying is that the black and minority mm. ethnic people are taking, but they're not giving? Mm. Absolutely. We are taking, oh my um, you know, um, we're giving a third, we're taking 100% and we're giving 33%. <laughs> so, <laughs> not uh, good, not good. And, 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 and when I actually went to give blood out local uh, to the um, centre in, in, in town centre, um, one of the nurses actually um, is a brother, is a Muslim brother. Uh, and, and so mm -hmm. that, that this is where really um, something really hit my mind and, and I asked him, I was like, what, what is generally the participation? He goes, bro, he goes, our community are the worst, alhamdulillah. <laughs> he goes, we take really? blood, but we never give it. <laughs> and this is a, <laughs> a Muslim really brother who's a nurse. Didn't know they existed, exactly. but it's amazing, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's working in the town centre. I mean, we, we walk past the uh, blood donation centre probably, you know, several times a year. I mean, depending how frequently you go, you have to go past it to go to the library, yeah? <laughs> So um, mm -hmm. uh, we all we all know of the place, but we just we all just think that someone else is doing this good work, and but in reality, there's a, there's a big shortage. So Imran, let me go to the doctor for a moment because uh, Dr. Abu Bakr is in the studio, and I, I'd like to benefit from his uh, medical expertise here as well. Uh, Dr. Abu Bakr, quickly, if I may, which is um, you know when people donate blood, um, surely you know people have they can have you know disease in their blood. And I'm sure nobody wants to benefit from blood that's um, contaminated or has, has issues. H how does the um, blood bank uh, figure that out? Um, many decades ago, even before I became a doctor, I've been a doctor a long time, there were issues because we didn't know about all these bacteria and viruses that were around. But now it's very heavily screened. And certainly the, the British blood donation is probably one of the best in the world. So it's very safe to receive blood. But also there's benefits of giving blood in addition to religious reasons, but also giving blood helps uh, reduce heart attacks. It reduces heart attacks by 88% in some people. Wow. Wow. Your, risk, your wow. risk of having a heart attack because you're losing a bit of blood uh, because we, we, we've got more blood than we actually need. So most people can give away one or two pints uh, every six to eight weeks, I think uh, they, they say. That's an interesting point you make because a lot, lot of people's say the reasons for not giving blood is say perhaps I might not be able to recover or I might feel ill or I might feel no, sort of th there's, weak. there's evidence for uh, reducing some types of cancers as evidence. So uh, all sorts of uh, different uh, reasons for giving blood, um, let yeah, alone the religious yeah. one where it says um, in the Quran, I think hey, it's Al-Mada, um, one life saved is as if you're saving mankind, humankind. Um, so if absolutely, you're giving blood, absolutely. most of the time you're giving blood because you're saving someone's life. That's an amazing point. Thank you for that, Dr. Akbar Bakr. Imran, um, we've only got a few minutes left, but I would love to know what you did when you saw that, um, you know, not enough BME folks are giving blood. What did you do? 
Yeah, so, so I thought, I mean, the, the immediate place for us, uh, for the Muslim community, um, I thought was um, to try and get numbers up, to get awareness really, um, is the masajid. Um, uh, and to be honest, I think, you know, we can try and utilize the masajid more. Um, so I thought, you know, we, let's speak to some of the local people, lo local um, Oh, come uh, on, leaders. bro. A masajid is a place for prayer. You can't give blood in a masajid, bro. <laughs> come on. <laughs> So surprisingly, <laughs> to be honest, uh, uh, pretty much everyone we spoke to, they were pretty much on board with it. Um, and, I, and I said, look, this is a very, you know, um, uh, a, a transcending issue. It doesn't, it crosses, you know, sectarian and various bounds. And so this, it's something that everyone can relate to. We know there's a need. Um, there's no difference. You, you, you mean so you're not going to have people saying, I don't want any Wahhabi blood or any this blood or that blood? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> okay, just making sure, just making sure. Bro, so, so when... Uh, we, now we like if we have an, a loved one who is definitely in need of blood, as in, for example, if, God forbid someone has an accident, and that one part of blood yeah. that you need, you're not going to question where it comes from. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. No blood. way. I'll take any you know, blood that I can get hold of, as long as it's a human blood. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I, I, and I think that's something that we don't realise until you have someone close to you who is in need of blood. That how actually how important. This really small, something we think as small as really actually is. You know, we can be so dependent and so reliant on that one little part of blood, you know, we would pay the world to have it if it's going to save our, you know, our loved ones, our son, daughters, parents, whoever, their life. Um, and, and subhanAllah, we just don't realize until, until they're in that situation how important it actually is. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, so, what's the biggest challenge you have right now? I mean, are people receptive to it? Are people giving blood? Are people actually taking it up? Um, so we're getting, we're making various kind of successes in different places. Again, I think it's awareness and people, like I said, um, you know, it, it, the response is varying. In some societies, you get more people signing up and others, it, it's, the, the participation isn't as strong. But I think right now, at least if you can start getting the awareness out, and then the more and more people realize that, okay, actually, uh, to be honest, a lot of it is to do with ignorance. We don't, we don't, we don't realize, we don't know how important the issue is. Um, and so at least if we don't get as many people to sign, at least if we can get the awareness out, then eventually yeah. we're hoping that more and more people will sign up as time goes by. Um, you, know, you know, wouldn't it be yeah. amazing? Imagine um, at the at the beginning of Juma, for example, maybe there was a, a not during the khutbah, of course, but uh, before the khutbah begins, there's like a demonstration to a Juma congregation. And look, um, here is somebody about to give blood. Of course, that somebody who's giving the blood will have to go and do their wudu again because you'll you break your wudu. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, you know, it's a really good way of getting out to the public and the community that hey, this is. This this is this is good for our health, but it's also good for the community. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I think we can develop it more and more as time goes by. Uh, but uh, essentially, with all the messages, what we're saying is, uh, we don't want just an announcement at the end of Juma. We need the khutbah to be based on the theme for people to understand. Yeah. We need we need it to come from the member and the imam talking about it for a good 15, 20 minutes, so that people understand and realize what the issue is. A lot of the time, True. things like True. this this take like a, a, a 10 second announcement at the end and people don't even get to realize what the issue is so so really to try and get this out to people and because we know alhamdulillah no matter what you're doing and whether you pray what your level of participation is in islam most people pray jumu'ah you know you can say 99 percent people especially male they pray jumu'ah yeah so i think the member of jumu'ah is something that really needs to be utilized more in things like this and and another similar kind of um uh, campaigns inshallah mm -hmm.
All right. Well, Imran, we've got to leave it there, but I really appreciate you joining us in the program and sharing your amazing activities. Jazakallah khair for that. All right, listeners. Jazakallah Listeners, this has been Friday Night Live with me, Abdul Akbar, and Zafar Iqbal. So let me go ahead and thank also Dr. Dalib Abu Bakr, local GP here in Luton, um, sharing um, his uh, medical expertise as well with us on the program uh, this evening. And hopefully we'll have him back in the future as well. But this has been another FNL show. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week for some more action-packed topics. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefmluton.